welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, we feature another Let It Roll seance in which Nate discusses the late Edward's history of rock and roll, parts one and two. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by the presence of a ghost, the late, great Ed Ward. I'm summoning his spirit for another Let It Roll seance as we discuss his History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, and History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and the Rise of Classic Rock. Obviously, I spent many episodes discussing these with Ed when we were lucky enough to have his living presence with us and learned an enormous amount. But I kind of want to talk about a couple of things where I've uh, broken with Ed. Broken is probably too harsh a, uh, a term, but where I feel like Ed had some missed opportunities um, in his books to put them into a more cohesive narrative and a couple of things where and I just disagreed, and uh, I continue to disagree with him. And 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 now that he's gone, I get to have the last word. That's the unfair thing about uh, history and life, I guess, is that the next generation gets to to speak after we go. But first up, let's talk about what I did learn from Ed because he taught me so much. When I first, um, I'd known Ed for about. 15 years when I proposed the idea of doing a podcast on his new uh, book series, new at the time, History of Rock and Roll. And I was pretty arrogant and cocky and thought I knew everything there was to know about the subject. And obviously, I respected his knowledge, but um, not as much as I would come to respect it after a couple of years of working with him. And the fundamental thing I learned from Ed was to put the music in context, uh, in the social context, and in America and in the history of rock music, that that inevitably uh, ties in with the America and racial history, with the uh, African diaspora, with the uh, importation of human beings into bondage into uh, the American North American continent, and all the ugly and beautiful ramifications of that. Um, there was obviously a lot of horror and a lot of murder, rape, robbery, exploitation, slavery, but there was also this cultural cross-pollination that gave us ragtime, that gave us jazz, that gave us American pop as we know it, that gave us rhythm and blues and rock and roll and rock music and hip-hop and electronic dance music 
et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Ed definitely taught me to center the discussions of the music in that context, that you can't talk about musical history without talking about historical history. And another key element in this conversation is religion. And this is one where I actually feel like Ed missed something that was right in front of his face. Ed was a huge gospel fan. His, his preference, in the time that I knew him, he got less and less interested in listening to music. He was more and more bitter about his experience as a writer and dealing with the publishing and, and music business. And so a lot of his um, music listening fell off. But he stayed loyal to his gospel favorites. He listened to a lot of gospel. He had an incredible gospel collection uh, of of MP3s. He he obviously had a great vinyl collection long ago, but he had, he donated that to some local libraries before I got to know him. But ironically, there's a through line narrative of rock and roll that Ed missed. Ed's narrative um, essentially to write the two books, his his methodology was to go through the back issues of Billboard magazine, Cashbox magazine, and uh, Rolling Stone magazine, and, and then to weave uh, what he felt was relevant from those magazines into an overall narrative. And he was an excellent prose stylist and really uh, packed it into a seamless, very enjoyable narrative given the amazing number of names and characters that he's introducing. But where I feel like he got into where he got off course, uh, or it's not that he got off course, it's just that it wasn't as coherent as it could have been, is that he missed this through line of religion to rock and roll. And this is something that I first learned um, about when I discussed R.J. Smith's book, The Great Black Way, Los Angeles in the 1940s and the Last African American Renaissance. And one of the things that RJ did in that book was talk about the Azusa Street Revival, which happened uh, in 1908, I believe, in Los Angeles. And this was a moment when a new American religion was born. And there have been multiple American religions. And, and I don't mean uh, – and I guess denominations probably a better term than, than religion. But, you know, Harold Bloom, the great uh, English – literature scholar wrote a book, The American Religions, and he talked about, you know, the Latter-day Saints and Christian Science and, and uh, Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses and all these very novel, uh, at the AME Church, uh, um, all these very novel forms of Christian denominations that arose in America after European and African settlers uh, came here. And one of those is Pentecostalism, which is this incredibly passionate and musically driven form of Protestantism that uh, arose uh, primarily in Los Angeles. A guy named William J. Seymour, who was a follower, uh, a black guy, William J. Seymour, who was a follower of a white guy, Charles Parham, who was a leader in the holiness movement, and how this big revival in Los Angeles, and this is where um, people first start speaking in tongues and where uh, they make a joyful noise and instruments were allowed. And there's this passionate explosion of religious fervor, uh, biracial, that happens in Los Angeles. Now, the, the two factions of, of this movement immediately split. Parham 
uh, initially treated Seymour as a follower. And uh, when he came to Los Angeles, he was actually horrified to see the integration of the races that was going on at Seymour's um, revival. And, and they, they rapidly split. But Parham took that enthusiasm with him and, and this holiness uh, strain that goes through the American South, especially, but all through America, um, takes a lot of that fervor, the Pentecostal fervor that Seymour had uh, bottled, as it were, at the Azusa Street Revival. Anyway, the, the point was that I think there's a through line from this moment to the explosion of rock and roll in the 1950s, that the connecting factor that almost every artist that's identifiable as distinctly rock and roll as opposed to rhythm and blues and i'm talking here about elvis presley little richard especially also jerry lee lewis and others is this pentecostal fervor and the way ed told his history of rock and roll he focused on country music and blues especially uh, muddy waters but he didn't talk about gospel in here at all and to me, that was an enormous uh, missed opportunity and and could have um, made a whole greater than the sum of its parts out of his work. And, you know, that's just that's just my two cents. But I, I want to also um, let's go ahead and hear 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 something that's a second piece that uh, Ed left out of his story. And this is uh, a Jimmy Rogers song featuring Louis Armstrong and his wife, Lil Hardin on trumpet and piano respectively and this is Blue Yodel number 9 Standing on the corner I didn't mean no harm Along come a police he took me by the arm It was down in Memphis, corner of Beale and Maine. He says, big boy, you'll have to tell me your name. And that was Jimmy Rogers featuring Louis Armstrong on trumpet and Mo Harden on piano doing Blue Yodel number no. 9 in 1931, I want to say, recorded by Ralph Peer. And this is another piece that Ed left out of his history, and, and I'm talking about jazz. And Ed... I think as a function of his age and general generational location, I mean, I remember once Ed saying to me on a show that he didn't care for Billie Holiday, which sort of staggered me. I mean, how does somebody not care for Billie Holiday? But, you know, taste is taste and everybody's entitled to their preferences. But Ed really did not care for jazz. And he joined many of the critics of his generation, and I'm talking about the first generation of rock critics, uh, Robert Christgau uh, and Grail Marcus uh, being the leaders of, of said generation, along with Ed and Dave Marsh and uh, many others. Um, but they tended to segregate and draw a big, bold line to separate the pop jazz era that preceded rock and roll from the rock and roll era. And I think that's an artificial distinction. And I think you can hear it in the song we just played. I mean, Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, and Louis Armstrong, the father of jazz, the father of improvisation, the first great American instrumental virtuoso in a pop context. 
right there together in one song. And when you go back and you listen to the classic blues artists of the 20s, the, the women singers, the, the Mamie Smiths, uh, the Bessie Smiths, uh, the Ma Rainey's, they're frequently backed by jazz bands. And you also get uh, you know things like Thomas A. Dorsey playing as Georgia Tom along with Tampa Red and, and doing Hokum Blues before he invents gospel. And it's obvious that the musicians of that time saw no distinction between blues and jazz. It was perfectly natural if somebody like Bessie Smith was going to record a blues record to have a little jazz combo backing her up. And yet uh, Ed and his generation of critics seemed to want to pretend that that was happening in a parallel universe or just didn't happen at all. And that country blues by people like Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters was the real deal and the real tradition. And that what Louis Armstrong was doing was this other tradition that becomes jazz and becomes this art music and becomes irrelevant to the story of rock and roll. And I just do not believe that. I think that... Um, it's it's clear that that the virtuoso tradition that starts with Louis Armstrong, and there's just no two ways about it. Louis Armstrong was the first popular musician in American history where people talked about, wow, did you hear that solo? And did you hear how, what he improvised on that track? And everything that follows uh, from Charlie Christian, you know, uh, to John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, the whole jazz jazz model all comes from Louis Armstrong, but so do the rock virtuosos. Somebody like Michael Bloomfield, whose biography Ed wrote, or the first biography of Bloomfield Ed wrote, was absolutely a direct descendant of Louis Armstrong by way of Charlie Christian uh, through Scotty Moore, Elvis's guitarist, who was massively influenced by Charlie Christian. So I really feel like Ed missed the boat on connecting jazz um, as part of the story, especially because swing was the pop music of the 1930s and the 1940s, and R&B directly derives from that. That Someone like Louis Jordan, who's acknowledged by everyone, including Ed, who's a big part of Ed's history of rock and roll, the father of rhythm and blues, Louis Jordan saw himself as a jazz saxophone player. He played with Chick Webb, who we've discussed on a couple of episodes. He was a member of the Chick Webb band, and he was as much a swing saxophonist as Charlie Parker was. And obviously, Charlie Parker took his music in one direction with the formation of bebop, and Louis Jordan took his music in a different direction with the creation of rhythm and blues. But to some extent, those are pretty artificial distinctions that, that weren't seen at the time in the mid-1940s when they were both playing to big dance halls and playing with swing groups. They would say they're just taking two different approaches, the same kind of music. And, and Ed, for whatever reason, wanted to write that out of his musical history. And I think that it hurt uh, the history overall. And, and, you know, Ed's the one who taught me that blues was a sort of backwater within the black musical community in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, that it somebody like Muddy Waters, even after he went electric and was migrated to Chicago, somebody like Helen Wolf, who migrated first to Memphis and then to Chicago, that these guys were not playing on the same Chitlin circuit as, say, Winoni Harris and Roy Brown, who were the truly most popular rhythm and blues singers of their era, rather that they were playing in small clubs and playing uh, to an older audience of 
migrants in, in the North, uh, uh, the people who had just come up from Alabama and Mississippi to Chicago, or people who are older and still remember the blues that had been popular in the 20s. Ed's the one who pointed that out to me, that this was this, I don't want to say backwater, but a side stream. And yet he was oblivious to the mainstream, which was swing and jazz. And and I think that there was, you know, as I've discussed um, in the book, talking about genres, I never have it handy, but uh, I, I did this last week too. I can't remember the guy's name, but but the decision to divide jazz and rock and roll as separate genres was pretty much undertaken by music writers in the 50s. That somebody like Duke Ellington as late as 1956 was calling Bill Haley jazz and saying that rock and roll is a subset of jazz. But first jazz critics in magazines like Downbeat, they tried covering rock and roll a little bit, but um, pretty soon fell away from that. It wasn't what they wanted it to do. They had been trying to take jazz in a direction of increasing musical sophistication and, and more of an art music and less of a dance music and less of a pop music. And so they uh, briefly flirted with rock and roll when it was extremely popular and they felt they kind of had to. But then when the backlash against rock and roll hits in the late 1950s, early 1960s. It was easy for, for magazines like Downbeat to drop their coverage. And then when a new generation of, of music writers comes along and is only interested in rock music, rock is distinct from rock and roll, they just wrote jazz out of that history. And so and so, even though there was a period of time when uh, you know artists like Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix and Cy Stone are kind of blurring the lines between jazz and rock, the critics made sure that those lines stayed enforced. And you know, Rolling Stone f- infamously fired uh, their jazz writers in the early '70s, and after that, they just did not cover jazz. And um, rock critics spent the next couple of decades with the connivance of jazz critics diminishing the value and the importance of jazz fusion and uh ed was very much very much part of that um but another thing i want to talk about that that ed taught me was uh and let's go ahead and hear our next song before i get on that next train this is sister rosetta tharp this train from the late 1930s this was a hit single This train is a clean train, this train. This train is a clean train, everybody ride it in Jesus' name. This train is a clean train, this train. This train. And that was This Train by Sister Rosetta Tharp. And, and, you know, Tharp is a classic figure that should have been absolutely center uh, to Ed's uh, history of rock and roll. And he very much treated her as an afterthought. And, and she is absolutely the person who connects the guitar with the Pentecostal fervor uh, of gospel music and was an enormously popular figure. And again, coming out of a swing context, she's playing with swing band leaders. Uh, somebody who, at a time when there was a very stark line between religious singing and, and popular singing or blues singing, 
Sistros at Atharp was able to jump back and forth on both sides of that line, seemingly undamaged. Somebody like Mahalia Jackson would refuse to sing blues at all, but Sistros at Atharp was able to perform in nightclubs with swing bands and do straight up blues numbers and uh, also do gospel numbers at the same time. And to me, she's absolutely center central to the history of rock and roll. And so it's very frustrating to me that Ed uh, Ed missed that. But I want to get back to things that Ed taught me that that he absolutely nailed. And one of those is the technological context of music and that you always have to keep in mind that this musical history took place in a context of technological innovation, first with the invention of audio recording, then the invention of radio and broadcasting, then the invention of electrical recording as opposed to acoustic recording. That's the difference between you know people gathering around a big horn and yelling loud enough for, to make an impression on a wax disc with a stylist and being able to sing quietly into a microphone that's using electricity to amplify the sound. And that's where you get the difference between somebody like Al Jolson who's shouting loud enough uh, to be heard in the back halls of a of an enormous vaudeville theater, and something like Bing Crosby, who's quietly crooning into a microphone, uh, whether it be uh, for a record or on radio, totally changed the intimacy of the sound and the history uh, of music. And you know, then you have the invention of magnetic tape in the 1940s, which allows the creation of things like Les Paul, uh, Les Paul's multi-track recording. Ultimately leads to you know things like Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's, and uh, you know the the entire history of of recorded music as we think of it now. Then you've got electric instruments, where instruments go from being acoustic to having uh, pickups and amplifiers, and you get the electric guitar and 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 the whole explosion of sound associated with that. And Ed taught me that there's sort of a shortcut, and this is something that that. And this is just my interpretation of Ed's Ed's life. I, I can't speak for him, but my impression is that Ed was a passionate music fan in his childhood and all the way up through college. And then as he became a professional critic and started getting free records that he and was exposed to the business side of the industry, that he very quickly lost his fans perspective and became a critic and it's very hard to do that it makes me respect the accomplishment of robert criscow all the more that he's been able to maintain um a critical stance and keep up with new music since the 1960s he's literally the only person of his generation who's continued to keep up with new music and and do new reviews and stay current and has created thereby a history of one person's opinion of the popular music of multiple generations from the 1960s all the way through the 2020s. But there's flaws with that uh, approach because, you know, there was this generational split where Ed and Chris Gow and their generation just did not like Led Zeppelin or hard rock. They didn't get it. They didn't like it. It was alien to them. It happens to everybody. Everybody, uh, almost everybody, you know, is put off by the music of the next generation. And that's a pretty glaring hole. I mean, Robert Criscow has still refused to acknowledge the importance of hard rock as a genre or a, a worthy thing. And that's kind of a big blind spot in his in his work. But what Ed figured out was that he didn't have to um, evaluate every piece of new music on its own merits, that he could look for certain signs that would tell him which scenes 
and which artists were most likely to be important. And he did this by looking back at the artists that had mattered to him that had been historically important to people, obviously, like Little Richard and Fats Domino and Elvis Presley. And one of the things, multiple things that Ed noticed were that they tended to come from dispossessed outsider groups, African-Americans obviously being one, but also Southern, uh, uh, poor white Southern uh, Americans, uh, Scots-Irish or redneck is the, the common slur used to describe my ethnic group. Um, but that, you know, if you, if you see people coming from an outsider group in Liverpool, England, very much fell into that same category. This was a, an absolute backwater uh, culturally as far as the great Western Cold War empire of capitalism, Liverpool was not a frontline city. And so, you know, when the Beatles came along, Ed had an organic reaction as, as a young fan, but he, he recognized, ah, that's one thing they had in common. And, and with, with Elvis and Little Richard and others, it's this outsider group. And the second thing was, it was technologically innovative, that he found that the artists who were doing new things with technology more often than not, were going to be more important than artists that were trying to revive an old style of music. And I think this is an excellent rule of thumb. It did get Ed in trouble when he infamously panned um, Stevie Ray Vaughan in Austin in the 1980s, which was certainly not a popular thing. But Ed's rule of thumb was, this kid is aspiring to make old music he's using old technology he's not doing anything technologically that Jimi hendrix wasn't doing 10 years earlier he's or 15 years earlier at that time he's not doing anything musically innovative you know that that wasn't being done by the blues revival which was itself a revival uh, of a revival um and so he dismissed the guy while he focused in on things like reggae and hip hop and electronic dance music that did meet his criteria. And so, you know, you're going to have these geniuses. You're going to have these John Fogarty's, somebody like that uh, of Creedence Clearwater Revival, who's doing a retro form, but doing it so well that it becomes culturally significant. But as a rule, those guys are not going to be as important as the people that are that are on the cutting edge of technology that are coming from the outside uh, socially, and so so that that is a, a good rule of thumb and something that that I've I learned from Ed, and and it it's something that was kind of hard for me because uh, growing up as a punk rocker, I always thought of punk rock as the innovative, progressive edge of music, and then having had this experience of doing all this research for Let It Roll and learning from Edward and so many others, I realize now that punk rock was this reactionary, backward-looking uh, musical form that was the last, the furthest thing from progressive. And I think that the fact that punk rock has always had this sort of flirtation with, with fascism, sometimes opposition to fascism, but that that it's no coincidence that reactionary political figures are drawn to a reactionary uh, form like punk rock. And that's been our Let It Roll seance for today. We've been discussing the work of the late, great Ed Ward, a friend as well as a colleague. Uh, in particular, we've been discussing his books, The History of Rock and Roll Part 1, 1920 to 1963, and The History of Rock and Roll Part 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. So, Ed, wherever you are, uh, we send you our best wishes, and we'll be back next time on Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. 
Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, we continue to let Motown roll with a recast of Nate's 2021 interview with Alan Slutsky, a.k.a. Dr. Licks, about the Funk Brothers, the backing musicians who provided the groove on every Motown track. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.